1: Greetings and good day, and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. In addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio. I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse, and this is an all native hosted, all native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcast, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices, indigenousradio.org for archive, downloading and listening. Our guest for the full hour is Martine Prechtel, who is an American author and educator who's raised on the Pueblo Reservation in New Mexico and of the First Nations Cree in Canada and as a young man, he traveled to Guatemala. After a year, he settled in a Tutsil village near Lake Atitlan. And he learned their Mayan language and studied with the leaders of that particular village. Married into the village, couple of sons, married, uh, and accepted a temporary leadership of the Tutsil people. But during the extended Guatemalan civil war, Practel and his family fled to the United States for safety. He returned to New Mexico to start a school where he now is currently settled in near Ojo Caliente, New Mexico. So I'm talking to Martin Pertel about the smell of rain on dust, the grief and praise by North Atlantic Books out of Berkeley, California. It's very important to talk about this indigenous way of looking at what grief and praise is really all about, because... Now, people are talking about trauma as if everybody has it. We can go to that, but when you really look at these uh, experiences and how peoples who have endured for this long have actually gone through the non-romanticized version of the idyllic Indian life and brought it forward to the public, so that we can show to you how we can deal with grief and praise in a much different way, a less analytical, wordy way, I suppose, I would say. These are my my observations and my comments, so I want to relate to you the story that Martine Practel brings, The Smell of Rain on Dust, and this is Martine Practel, a Cree elder who lives now in New Mexico. I'd like to thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio, and now... Martine Prechtel.
0: Hey, how are you doing? Hey, you I've been
1: reading your book this past week or so and, uh, you know, kind of contemplating what I, what I have been reading, you know. And yeah. a lot of the people out there, Martine, if you could uh, think about this grief and praise that this book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, is all about. And in my contemplations, thinking about the grief that is at a standstill or a damned, as much as a wall there is, about grief. The smell of rain on dust addresses or begins to address this. Further, there's discussion on grief and praise. These are two words that I'm thinking grief and praise. How would they relate to each other or are they far apart? Martin?
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. The publishers didn't, they said... What does grief and praise have to do with each other? So, well, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> you can probably read it. So, I just, um, when, uh, well, anyway, good morning. It's good to hear your voice. Oh, yes, thank you. I hope you're feeling better from Uh-oh. running around <laughs> out there in crazy New York. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, the smell of rain on dust. Well, where I grew up, I grew up in New Mexico, you know, and um, uh, rain is like rarity and we love, that's like God to us, Goddess. And, and the dust is very common, and when it's raining, it's a beautiful thing. So, and then when they lived in Guatemala, uh, it turns out that's the name of a deity, and uh, it's a couplet. And when I lived there, I was, uh, you know, it's very common for the people to be uh, when there's an. It's not just mourning for somebody who's dead or a loss of this or loss of that, but the people are always constantly in a delicious language of praising on an every day daily basis, in fear also that if one does not live in that way um then the rain won't come the crops won't grow the plants will die the children won't prosper and so on and so forth and i I lived like that for a long long time and it wasn't you know like i was special or anything it was just how it was and then when all the terrible wars came in from the outside and the inside and every side and everybody was dying and i was forced to leave my little family when i got back to my uh, native new mexico you know, I was very poor and was just struggling along later on. I became a teacher, and I was, um, you know, slowly but surely, I was supposed to be talking somewhere in in Minneapolis, I think, about a gang violence, some conflict. And of course, as far as I'm concerned, it's related to grief. So I stopped off at a funeral of somebody I knew who had passed away, and nobody was grieving. And there was no praise of the dead or nothing. And it just all of a sudden hit me during this funeral that. There is no real praise going on. In order to grieve properly, you have to be able to praise life. And that in order to uh, praise, when you praise, there has to be grief in the praise of the mortality of being alive. So that the stakes are very high on a daily level. And I realized all this Mayan culture that I had been living in all these years, and other native cultures that indigenously this was just in place in the culture and was the main one of the major things was so-called you know civilization has uh, erased and rollered underneath the rug because it's not efficient and it's not business you know, oriented. So I started, you know, on my first lecture, there, I started talking about that and, and people said, well, wow, grief and praise. So I look at it, people say, if they can't praise, I mean in a legitimate way, not just like advertising to get you to buy something, you know, or get more work out of you, but praise, like when you see a young person seeing something worthy and weeping, you, you praise them for that or you praise the someone comes up. If people can't praise, they generally have a terrible trouble grieving, and it's not their fault, you know, because that's the way it's taught. And people who are going to be in a grief situation, which, you know, you're going to be if you're alive on this earth and have a heart, then it's very difficult to have anywhere um, to sing or or speak if there's no capacity to praise. And therefore, the grief and the praise seems to be the left and right hand of the same Ventricle of the heart, you know. So mm-hmm. I just
1: wrote a little book on it. This this little book that I've been reading is been uh, very interesting. You know, and I first, okay, what am I going to pick up here? A new age kind of, you know, fluffy yeah, get through the right. w- words type of thing, and then it just start. It it's like a mist that cleared after understanding what you'd explained: uh, grief and praise as a difference, but yet s- somewhat of the same thing. Belonging, one needs the other in order to c- to continue um Martine Practel is this author and he's a painter and musician and educator and this is like uh, this is what we need here this ownership of of our own our own praise our our own grief and as a nation I'm look I'm looking at this nation here and that's what I'm really wondering because a nation affects the land and the land is like holding all this grief that these folks who came from other parts of the world came to this land to find something peace i would say and that they are stuck in the grief of it and um, whether it's expressed expressed out loud as you say or whether in or out of character whether it's choreographed or not and and honest and for someone we have lost or a country or a home we have lost in itself, the greatest praise we could ever give them—grief is praise because it is the natural way love honors what it misses.
0: Right, beautiful. Yes, I think well,
1: that's I, that's beautiful, you know. And I think I think about you know these little stories that you you throw in with the indigenous soul, if I may say that, sure. into into your stories comes from that Pueblo native that you are in new mexico and i think about that the languages especially i you know i'm always talking about that the languages and our engineer michael G knows this that i'm talking about language the root of the languages, where and how and where did we lose or in other words where did america lose its ability to not grieve
0: well i thought the the, the ability to not grieve was lost a long time before they established what was supposed to be america you know I mean, the northern europeans and lots of people have you know, I, I started this school to figure out exactly that. I'm still working on it. But yeah. it seems like in order to have a, a civilization that is top-heavy and takes more out of the ground than it gives, you have to lose your native spirituality because otherwise, it, you know, you're going to spend more than 51% of your national gross income fulfilling what is necessary to give back to the ground spiritually and otherwise. And when you can finally designate nature as a dead thing that is just there as a resource for you to blast off to a world that doesn't exist yet instead of being in love with where you're living, then you're constantly immigrating out of where you are because the people who take it over there make it impossible for the lower echelons to survive. And so, you know, there's all this emigration to other places pushing everybody out, and the grief level just keeps increasing. So you end up digging a hole to fill the next hole, you know, as we all know, but it's also a spiritual thing. So this uh, issue of not having a capacity with praise and I mean, if you read all of the old, um, you know, stories of the English and the Spanish and all the different French and when they were meeting all the different native leaders, I mean, the greatest complaint about them was the enormous days spent palavering about praising their actual enemies and praising one another and, and their own people and building all this thing up before you get down to the issue, which is really a lot of native people still like that, natural peoples, and this is really part of the, the capacity to grieve. The guys will be complaining as a guy. We're never going to, you know, get these guys to sign off all these gold land. They sit around praising and talking and all this stuff. And I think that um, it's because it's natural for people to really speak beautifully and to feel the depth of a loss. But uh, once you uh, get to a point to where if you're going to do that, you actually have to take time out of the business. You have to take time out of the entire village for that to happen and it takes more than one person you can't just go sit in the corner which is where we're at now and um so it uh it becomes you know a stigma that is with us always and uh i you know i don't propose in this group in this book any enormous cure it's just more of an awareness of the reality of it because i imagine a lot of things could go a lot of different ways but it's certainly the the way of the world when it comes to the so-called uh business modern global way of being it's just you know let's just get this thing out of the way, this grief and praise thing would be, um, uh, it's non-economical in the, in the competitive warlike uh, business sense. But it is enormously economical, if you want to look at it that way, in a, in a true sense, because it's based on, even when you plow a field, like Mayan people, when they're going to plant their field traditionally, not, the, not the modern people, but the, traditionally, they actually weep over their seeds and ask permission to plant them because they can consider it a funeral because the seed they're never going to see again, and is it willing to die for the appearance of human culture and so when they plant and the seed comes up, and they say, "Ah, oh, Shula, watch that and it's good to see your face again because they return back, and then they praise this possibility of something dying to bring something back to life and this is just a way of being so you can understand like i i i you know I have this crazy you know altruistic theory that all people in the world started with that way. And that's what I call the indigenous soul. And when that indigenous soul gets lost, and the grief is lost, and the praise is lost, and then people are depressed, and then they keep running for all of these cures, farther and farther afield, mechanical and technological cures for what is really basically just a human innate capacity to do so, praise and grief.
1: Uh, yeah, you know when when you talk about and you talk about the indigenous soul and and you know quite often here on on First Voices are referred to all peoples were indigenous and are indigenous, but ninety five percent of us have forgotten how to be that. And then when you go to the part about uh, the land, when you when you think about the land, that tree, that animal, that 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 fly on a wall, these buildings that we've created, everything seems to be absorbing. The, um, the, the energy, I guess you'd say, of grief. And uh, a lot of people have not learned how to deal with grief, as you say, and as, as I become aware of it because of this book and through my life too, is that in the Native nations, it seems like we are always grieving. Um, so one one funeral to the other the next week, the next week, and it's just like, you know, at the end of the year, you have, you're have you gone to 52 funerals, and that that's really how it is but you if if you know at some point in in this country as as a whole we we have failed and forgotten how to address the land, and as you say that, that they, they 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 grieve because they 're going to miss the the seeds and they won 't see them anymore, and I still see that within native societies, native cultures, we are not decimated to a point where we cannot notice ourselves missing something. And I, I do think that that's what's going on, is that missing something hasn't happened yet. The awareness, in, and we kind of jump from this conscious level of, of of Earth to somewhere out in another dimension called Heaven, and we haven't really dealt with this consciousness at all here.
0: Yeah, you know, they're always trying to um, jettison the Earth as like a launch pad to go into a world, you know, that's Western expansionism, you know, where you're trying to go to heaven, so you wreck where you are, like you burn off the pad in order to blast off to get to the Alpha Centauri, or you're always, you know, wrecking Poland and Germany and France in order to get, you know, to the so-called new world, which has been there all along, and then you know, scorch that one up trying to get to California and they scorch that one and then it starts going around in a circle, you know. So the the constant leaving and constant leaving instead of actually being in a place well is, uh, you know, the, the major um, characteristic of the, the civilization and modernity. Nowadays, technology makes it, in, you know, just instantaneous and it's not even thought about anymore. But the... The land is not dead, and as you say, people still have hearts, and people can still feel, and they can also see things coming back to life that have left and then come back. If you live long enough and you stay put long enough, you can say, oh, I planted these seeds, or this thing goes down, or the rain hasn't been here. Now I'm acting a certain way. The rain has returned. And you you can still see those things, and you can still feel them. But when a group of people does it, it gets a whole other dimension, you know, because you got the little kids where something great is written on their heart when they're little, and they can see you know, people of age seeing all these things that in, in like modern culture are looked upon as kind of back burner events. Because grief really is a part, as a kind of generosity, and with all of the you know Indians, Native people, I mean, generosity is the number one thing, and generosity to each other and generosity to the land. As you say, you're going from one funeral, one feast to the next. And uh, the the fact that you're spending an enormous amount of your uh, living existence kind of planting people in the ground so they can come back out again as new culture, well, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a total um, old-time way of being. So I, I had a lot of hope. I'm a hopeful guy. I know that you know there's an enormous monster out there, but it's a well, one little idiot's got to keep
1: mm-hmm. howling
0: in the desert you know <laughs> somewhere, and so you know it's still raining, and it 's still the earth, and people can say you know i uh you know we've got um, weapons of mass destruction, we can tear everything up and we can fence everything and say, yeah, you can do that, but you know so you know you're jumping up and down being so tough, but can you actually sit still and be friendly with the place when you die you know mm. so it takes a lot more courage to be in that
1: way you know so. and that's the first half of our interview with martin prectel the author of the smell of rain on dust grief and praise thank you for joining us here on first voices radio my name is teokas Ghosthorse, ghost horse and here is another first nations marie bowen Sami, indigenous person from norway Ah, the old crunchy snow under the feet. And then you hop right on to that snowmobile and away you go. That was Yukik by the Jerry Cans out of Alaska. And this is First Voices Radio. My name is T. Oaks and Ghost Horse. The Smell of Rain on Dust Grief and Praise is a book by Martin Prechtel, he is the author of many other books also. He is Cree and Elder. And uh, to know more about Martin Prechtel, You'd have to look him up at floweringmountain.com, floweringmountain.com. And now we'll go back to Martine Prakhtel and find out more of the meanings that we were discussing, especially the meanings about life and trauma and more of what it means to indigenous peoples to be able to be resilient to colonization within our homes, within outside of our homes, and what we do about it. Now back to Martine Prectel. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. Martine Prectel, we we um, I think about, you know, what you've said and what I've read and what I've experienced in my life as an indigenous person or a native person is a uh, you know, a, a lot of natives go places and they often experience something that's more prevalent now. People are becoming aware of it. A lot of Native people, even 20, 30 years ago when I was a younger man, is uh, they were saying Mother Earth is crying. Mother Earth is weeping now. I, 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 do you think Mother Earth is in grief also?
0: Ma- yeah, no, no, well, you know, where I come from, we don't have just Mother Earth. We've got mother, father, and all, uh, much more dimensional. But yeah, the the entire... Um, You know, it's like a lot of these, you know, very well-meaning, younger and more aware alternative people are always saying, you know, what do we do about the grief of the changing climate? Well, what do you mean the changing climate is the grief of the earth? (laughs) That's the earth weeping. That's her not just weeping, but like the old custom of being able to wander through your village streets singing the praises of the one you loved and that you miss and even being angry about it and all the people are concording with you and not sa- not trying to cure you or stop you from speaking your peace even if you collapse, you collapsing know, from exhaustion well the earth is doing the exact same thing she's going around in her village she's trying to you know she's expressing the terrible pain of the loss of what's happening to her at the same time her breasts are still feeding us the milk of what we w- ourselves will not give nutrition to but we just keep taking so yeah i think all of these uh, so-called weather uh, back and forth is just a gigantic case of grief of the, of the earth herself. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. And That's I really, terrible. I really thought about you know your stories that you in- included in you know, especially about Wetzel and you know the little shell oh, yeah. and that was that was something something else. And
0: well, I'm and, glad you liked that because everybody complaining about that chapter.
1: <laughs> really, that that, that just, <laughs> <laughs> the the whole idea of. Of introducing that that I that you know that a little shell has that much power. I think it's beyond I think Western minds because we 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 often relate. Uh, what did Vine Deloria say? We often in the West we often relate uh, uh, knowledge and power make equal knowledge and power, and we forget about knowledge and morality. You yeah, see, sir. and and I think about this, and, and the one thing that I said in a, a recent group that I was with is everybody was talking about themselves, and it, I this, and I that, and I, you know, it came to be where it just, it came to my turn, and I thought, what's the first thing that comes out of my mouth in the morning? So, and to continue that, what I said to them, well, the first thing that I thought when I woke up this morning, and I wanted to say to you all, there was maybe 15 in my group, I said, Mother Earth misses you. Yeah. yeah. And, and then we discussed it a little bit further. And then I said, now, are we apologizing to Mother Earth? Is that what it's going to take? And that's a question to you also.
0: Well, apologizing is definitely okay, but it's still, you're sitting still. As far as I'm concerned, grief and praise is actually very enormously active, but not active in the, in the military sense, you know, in the surgical sense. But it's something where if you really are going to be a friend with this one, then you have to, we call it is to, to be able to um, feed. And then feast, like when someone comes to your hut, comes to your house, comes to your place, you don't like, you know, say, oh, why'd you come? Why you? you sit them down right away, giving some liquids and giving something to eat. And after a while of talking beauty, then, you know, maybe something will come out and then we'll, we'll find out what it is. So it's about being able to approach something instead of assuming that it belongs to you, approaching and asking permission even to apologize because uh, the greatness of the giganticness of the natural world, people have is like some sort of minion for the, you know, you can live in the city and have a little walled garden and all that, so you get this illusion that human beings are somehow in charge of the big picture, but (laughs) you you get a little farther out and you're like, oh man, you know, we're really a very small lichen on an enormous rock, you know, and and it's just the most magnificent thing. Instead of being discomforting, it's like, oh, I have to bow before these beings and give what I can of the gifts. And what do I have as a human being to give anyway? Because my hair didn't come from me, the food that I eat doesn't come from me, the clothing on my back and the fiber and all this didn't come from me. Granted, the ingenuity of humans to turn all these things to other things. So the idea is to be able, you have hands, you know, most of us, some don't have hands, unfortunately, but uh, you have thumbs, a posable thumb, and we have this gorgeous capacity with language, which is, I love your thing about language, because that's my thing too. Mm-hmm. And if you 're able to address something instead of just you know having it an abstraction that you can consider, but you actually think the words, if they 're spoken in a certain way, actually feeds life and makes grass grow and makes things happen and makes things you can and you realize that words can poison and kill the holy, but it can also make a, a give a gift so that it gives nutrition to the being that gives us life, the great great natural world so the The realignment of actual linguistic speech and digs different uh, routes in the, in a person's soul and their brain so as as you say the first thing in the morning when you get up, you know you feed the sun to come out of the ground, so he does well because he struggled through night to get out of the egg of darkness and on and on and so. If you have a language like that, and you try to develop, I'm always thinking of trying to develop a new one, by you making English that doesn't want to think like that by nature. I mean, the, when I read the book, I don't. I write by hand, and then all the computers, you know, they put them into written form, and the computers go, eh, you can't say this, this, you can't capitalize that, this is not right. <laughs> hey, man, I mean, the computer is part of the proselytization of that. The Earth is just a... Uh, you know, an article instead of the, all these big be, beings. So, if you're able to wake up in the morning or go to bed any part of the time and you can change your language in order to make it so there's no it, because na- natural languages don't have it. Like mine doesn't have he, she, or it. Everything is animate. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only animate, but very much alive and very much listening, and humans can turn into these different things. So, Oh, uh, what i would trying to say is, is that when uh, that's the one place I think I'm thinking that can people can actually do something. It doesn't cost anything. It's just a lot of effort, and it's you know it's, it's you have to sit down and or stand up. I guess not sit down, it's stand up and do it. So yes. yeah. Stand up and do it. Um
1: Martin, Martin Practel, you know, I, I know you, you've grown your your younger years were growing up on the, the Pueblo reservation in in New yeah. Mexico and then later on you moved to to Mexico, is that correct?
0: And Guatemala, I think. Guatemala, Guatemala. yes. A little down
1: and and growing up in that that I don't I don't know I don't like to do a comparative thing, but I think because it's such a dualistic language that I'm speaking to you now, is that I wanted to somewhat include the fact that in in that language of you speak in in Pueblo and uh, Kiris, I think it is, and uh-huh. and in uh, a lot of native languages that I know of, and I've asked other linguists here uh, that are native, and they're saying, yeah, there there is, as we know, there is no curse words. There are no curse words, right. no no cuss <laughs> words in our languages, and some some have come forward and said that. Uh, our languages, we, we cannot, we can speak all day. We can speak all day without saying a single noun mm-hmm. because it's so alive and inanimate, okay. like you say. So in, in, that, in that thought process of, 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 like you say, you're hopeful or optimistic is in, in I'm finding a lot of people who, who do not deal with grief often are, are blaming others for their own grief.
0: Oh, yes, yeah. so the issue of revenge, too, you know, and somebody else is to blame. Um, well, first of all, the, the, I love the thing about uh, verbs and nouns. Um, in all of the languages, well, I speak a couple of native languages, and so my mother was native, and my dad was quarter native, you know, but I never spoke any of their language, and I don't know. They're all from Canada, you know. But... um I also have beautiful languages. I just love all these languages and Mongol and everything. But the, the other thing is without um, a verb to be of the type that is in English or, you know, Romance languages, everything must be described. And any any so-called noun, it comes from a verb. And so everything is in constant motion. So the, um, the necessity to uh, blame something else, on um, what happens, in a sense, is legitimate because it's not about blaming it, but there's this whole gigantic um, uh, great uh, turbulence of a life that makes everything happen. Life itself is, I mean, when you're in these languages, at least when where I come from, the the fact that you have two days in a row where everybody's still alive, sitting around the fire with enough to eat, is considered a privilege, you know? It's not like a right. And you're just always so thankful that your children are well and they're all there together again. And there's been no landslides and things are working out. And there's no, you know, uh, malaria and all that. So the the gratitude for being alive is always expressed in the language. So when somebody dies, it's natural for a human to go. The pain is so big. You want to go have a revenge. You know, go scalp somebody. Go go do it. But see, where I grew up, when I was a kid, they would let everybody think those thoughts. But they wouldn't make it into a national policy because they had to feel it. They had to say it, and everybody would agree, you know, ostensibly agree. But no one would act on it unless it was really, really in the interest of, you know, the people's survival. But that would be like the last case resort. In the modern world where they think, you know, they've gotten away from primitivity and, you know, you have all this Roman peace or English peace or the American peace. We're trying to stop everybody from internecine fighting and all that. They're, they're promoting more revenge than ever, and they use that to, uh, you know, modify everybody's uh, sca- uh, sense of scaredness. So they buy all these products or buy into all these pseudo security situations. Whereas, you know, if you have the language, it's not a language of calm, but a language where it metabolizes. So I always use the word metabolize because you don't get over grief. Grief is like rennet; man, it metabolizes sorrow and loss, so it makes more life. And that's basically what praise is. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, It's a kind of very organic, you know, physical activity, I mean, it's innate in us. And people, act, you know, like little kids, people actually have it in their heart to do that. But it's something trained out of the people, I think, hmm. to not have that beauty, because they're all you know, very militaristic, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about just toting machine gun, but just in a business, sense, very hard, you know, and go get her stuff. Which you know, what are you going to do in this society? Like you were fighting traffic to get into the radio. I mean, what are you going to do? You have to kind of do it. But the thing is, um, you don't have to believe that that's the reality that has to be. You know, it can be different. Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Yeah, and you you talk a little bit about you know the the uh, the type of peace that we that we. I don't know adhere to in the west is and I often think it's after the 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 pax the pax romanus where you know uh-huh. the, the type of peace was left after the war and people adhere to the, the, the <laughs> destruction they think that's peace after everything is destroyed as you mentioned earlier but now we we have the whole of a people understanding military more or less in a disturbed way distorted way and then our the military men the soldiers come back here and in, in the native ways, and I understand a lot of native peoples have a sort of uh, we we call a debriefing here in the West, mm-hmm. but back back home there are, there are ceremonies that we do to revive our spirit to to call our spirit back. Could you explain a little bit a little bit of that process?
0: Yeah, in this book, I, I kind of took a chance, and and it was an old guy, who used to tell me a lot of the, about this from the from the old days. But we were watching guys coming back from Vietnam, and in Laos and Cambodia and all that craziness that was going on in the 60s and 70s. and um, The thing that was always amazing to me is that, you know, it had plenty of warrior stuff going on, but it's not the same thing as a militaristic war formed by a, an imperial society that's sending somebody over uh, somewhere to to maintain this society's sovereignty over another society's, you know, old-time raiding and stuff like that. It was a totally different issue. It's actually a ritualistic sort of thing. But when it did happen... Anybody who killed, uh, when they came back, they weren't allowed to come back into the central part of the normal human being. They weren't shunned and they weren't put down, but they had to be remade and renamed and made into a different type of human being, and in some societies, I mean, they become more warriors, but in uh, where I grew up, they actually became, uh, which you might, I guess, for lack of a word in English, it's people who were the, the healers of other people who were going to be coming back, who were maimed by war or having seen the trauma, or themselves having killed. And therefore, realizing that you lose a piece of yourself when you kill somebody, but where I grew up, it wasn't so much that you lost a piece of yourself, is that you took the person's soul who you killed, and then you had to take care of them. And they even, in the really old days, thought that the next child that you had would be named after the enemy that you had killed, because that would be the reincarnation of the person whose life you had taken, and therefore you were raising the person you killed in your, in your family as your most prized child. And a lot of tribal people believe that and think that all over the world. And so when you were coming back, you, um, you to get back into society, would be a very shattering experience for everyone involved on both sides of the, the, the situation. So they had all these old characters who would go out and meet you and make you camp outside the town and try to re-initiate uh, you. And so somebody had to sacrifice their own normal life to do that. So there'd be one man who would say, okay, I love this man who's coming back and I know he'll be shattered if I don't do this. So he would come out and touch him. And the two of them would become what was known as the right and left leg of the same organism, and they'd lose their old names, and they would give them re- new names, and then they would have to reinitiate into this warrior society, which is not a society of people who went out and killed, but a society of people who had been warriors, so that they would be taking care of the spirits of whoever they had maimed or killed, and, but they would also become healers for p- any kind of trauma that, that people experienced, including like falling off a horse or getting, you know, in a landslide, or and nowadays with car wrecks, and all, they would still be the ones to heal that sort of violent invasion of the body and I you know when I was I heard this when I was a kid you know I I thought it was pretty amazing but more the older and older I got you know I started realizing how amazing that was because I would see some of the guys coming back and they would still have this custom and they had the same if they had killed a bear or killed an eagle. It was the same as killing a guy, and they go through the same thing. And and then um, the people who went through that they became very highly regarded in the town. And the, the guys that you know stayed out drinking in the city, they always tried to pull them in, but they were just lost, you know. And they were a sacrifice to the culture at large, you know. And you and they were also not shunned. They also loved, but they just couldn't find their way back home. I just watched this with so much grief you know and they realized wow what kind of people have become today that can't do that with their with their men and women who are returning from a war which they themselves probably didn't start and weren't were just joining up in order to get enough money to go to school in order to you know learn to do some strange business thing that would feed their family and here they are you know doing the beck and call of somebody who's calling the shots and they don't know anything about it so
1: very interesting very interesting martin fractal the author of the smell of rain on dust that i'm reading i think it's it's a it's a pick. you you need to get this book to to realize some things that we are just carrying around with us every day here in this country and um, it has to start with the roots and the original thoughts that I think that this contains is is something else and we have a couple minutes left, Martine but I wanted to make sure that people knew the original, what griever really meant originally
0: Oh, in English you meant? Yes In the English language, yeah Well, um (laughs) It was actually basically uh, for um, the curing of blood feuds, it meant the amount of um, goods, slaves, uh, cattle, uh, livestock, you know, food, money, that was for the compensation of the loss of an individual in one clan or tribe as having been, uh, when somebody from another tribe or clan had killed that person in order to stop the people who were gonna take revenge on the people who had killed. And so it became what is known as the payment of the grief. And then later on, so then in English it becomes like a grief was when someone has done a damage to you, you've suffered a grief. And so it wasn't this usage that people are using nowadays, you know, so well, I feel grief? The grief, in the old, you know, would be the sorrow. But now um, I'm using the word grief, you know, advisedly, mind you, because it's an ancient history, but now etymologically, you know, it's changed. So now, you know, the grief is what a person feels when they, they have suffered a loss. Whereas originally it was the, uh, the compensation given to the people either by the war, other opposite party or by the government itself in order to compensate having been damaged by those persons. Mm. So, it, you know, things have changed in the language and I love to look at those etymologies because you start realizing, oh, well, you know, people think this and then, but it, it actually comes from this really militaristic past. Yeah. So, maybe that has a lot to do with. I mean, they banned mourning uh, the dead in Europe and the Christians, you know, and uh, started in 599. And, you know, you could be jailed. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't know how you would determine it, but in, in like Spain for, you know, showing this immense emotion, which was considered to be, you know, pagan. And so it became very a sign of being modern and effete to suppress your emotions when you suffer the loss. with mean, you're a tough guy. But, you know, when you're in a war or something like that, or you're in a bad uh, emergency situation, you don't have time to grieve in order to cause survival of your people. Mm-hmm. So no, you know, interest of people trying to understand this, you know, it's understandable. But if you look at Western culture, if you want to call that, but not only Western culture, all civilized culture, imperial cultures, they always live in an eternal uh, eternal state of emergency. It's, all, it's from one emergency to the next, from the next emergency to the next. They live in eternal, you know, adrenal burnout. And there's never a time where all the people are at peace and they come together. And... um That is very, very uh, amazing that people think it's normal when you're two years old, you know, to have your adrenals burning that high with that much uh, stimulation to be constantly dealing with a situation that has to be made different than it is instead of actually being in love with the life you live on the ground with all the plants, the animals, and the people. So grief is not about... uh, uh, getting over it's about being able to praise the lives we live having been given enough life to have lost and enough life to give life again by the way we grieve
1: so martin prechtel thank you so much for being here on first voices oh, uh, on. radio and uh you know being that it's raining outside, and um, <laughs> now you can smell the rain on the dust.
0: Right? Exactly. Here, too. Yeah. They were complaining before I came to, I'm up in Vermont, and they're complaining they had a drought, which they don't really know what that means. Six weeks without rain. I said, I've gone seven years without rain. And and I, I said, It's going to rain when I come. I'm going to make a prayer. I'm going to fall asleep, and it's going to rain. It's been raining for two days now, so we're living oh, yeah. good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Very nice. That's very smell nice. Smell of rain on the dust.
1: Martine Prechtel, who is an author, painter, musician, and, and educator, folks. Um, look forward to more Martine on First Voices Radio. And thank you so much for your patience and, and allowing me to come here and the community radio station that I belong to. You know, that I belong to. The radio station does not belong to me. I belong to it. And so thank you. Thank you.